Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the St. Paul's Morning Report podcast. I'm Daniel Ennis, and I'm joined by Barry Casson and Steph Boye. How is everyone? Hey, you guys. Hey, Yo. Danny. Hey, Barry. Okay, so I'd like to introduce our guest host tonight. So we are joined by Alistair Williams, who is an R2 in internal medicine. Alistair, hey, how are you? I'm great. Pleasure to be here. Awesome. We are really looking forward to the case tonight. So we'll hand it over to you and uh, take it away. All right. So this is a case that evolved over several years and stumped a lot of different consultants. So I'm hoping you guys can figure it out. So this is a 39-year-old gentleman. His presenting complaint when he initially presented to healthcare was about a two-month history of worsening leg weakness and tingling in his feet. Uh, he had previously been very active as a hiker and had noticed that he had more difficulties performing his normal activities. He couldn't really go on any hikes anymore. This steadily got worse uh, over a two-month period until he decided to present to hospital. In hospital, a neurologic exam was performed, and this demonstrated essentially normal cranial nerves, mild weakness of the right finger abductors and bilateral finger flexors, normal upper extremity tone, but with very brisk reflexes and bilateral Hoffman signs, normal upper extremity sensation, Normal lower extremity power, but with very brisk reflexes with crossed adductor reflexes and bilateral Babinski signs, and a lack of pinprick sensation up to the inguinal area and impaired vibration sensation at his great toes. A cerebellar exam revealed difficulty with tandem gait and a positive Romberg sign. The remainder of his physical exam, including brief uh, head and neck, cardiorespiratory and abdominal examinations were normal. And lab work was significant for a white blood cell count of 2.2 with neutrophils of 1.5, lymphocytes of 0.5, and monocytes that were undetectable, normal eosinophils and basophils, a hemoglobin of 153 with platelets of 174. His coagulation studies and chemistries, including extended electrolytes, were normal. And his liver function showed a mild elevation in ALP and GGT at 120 and 85, respectively but normal ALT, AST, LDH, and albumin. His bilirubin was also slightly elevated at 26. A slam dunk. So guys, what do you, what's striking to you uh, up front? Anything that you want to comment on based on that exam and story so far? I think I the, the first... one of the nice things about a neurologic exam is, or the description of the neurologic exam is to try and anatomically put a lesion or several lesions in play. And um, so we're told basically the conclusion from the investigations or from the uh, assessment is what he has an upper motor neuron lesion, which involves either the cord and the brain or, or both. He has a sensory level at his inguinal area. And the other, the other findings, the Romberg, I think is probably very, pretty difficult to, to uh, assess in the face of an upper motor neuron lesion. And I don't know how to add the issue of his weakness of his motor uh, to his right hand with with the exception of saying that putting the lesion in the cervical spine could do all of this. What do you think, Steph? I think that's right. I think that all sounds right. I think I'm getting a sort of an upper motor neuron feeling to this. I'm going to stick with my usual bias, which is that 39-year-old people with relatively short illnesses probably just have one thing. So I'm going to hope that this turns out to be one thing, one lesion. 
or, or at least one process causing one or more lesions. There's no back pain that we were told about. And so I don't think this is going to turn out to be like a simple sort of disc herniation or something like that. And I think honestly, what I would do, I, I'm not a neurologist and I don't do tons of neurology. I think what I would be doing is I expect that very soon on in this person's uh, course, they're going to have quite a lot of neuroimaging, including MRI of the spine and possibly also of the brain. But before I get that imaging, what I do in practice is I take a look at the best neurological exam documented that I can find or, or my own neurological exam. And then I try to anticipate what the lesion is going to be or where the lesion is going to be so that when that imaging starts to come back, I can have in my mind a sense of which of the findings are going to be true and which of the findings are going to be red herrings. Because my, my feeling these days is that the neuroimaging is so sensitive that often there's many, many findings described, and I have a hard time understanding which of them are real or which of them are relevant and which aren't. I think that's a really good point. Like I, I'm on service right now at the hospital and we're dealing with a case where there were very vague neurologic symptoms. And we now at St. Paul's uh, have a 3T MRI. Now, I don't know if they were using all three T's for this particular MRI, but it picked up a lot of like stuff, right? Like there might've been a little bit of dust on the lens or something. And it there's just some things in there and they have nothing to do with the symptom complex um, that the patient described. But now we're kind of locked into this, uh, you know, the tailspin of chasing down things that we found on imaging. So I think it seems uh, very wise to me to make sure that you don't just say, oh, there's a neuro thing. So let's just do a neuro test and it'll just tell me what it is. Like, I think that my neuro also has deteriorated (laughs) quite a lot. And I would have to go back to like my neurologic physical exam textbooks to be like, okay, like I need to know where is the lesion and what is the lesion. The where is the lesion I can maybe figure out by carefully documenting a physical exam and seeing if it matches one of these cord syndromes or does it does it not? And is there for multifocal or is there somewhere in the brain specifically that maps nicely to this? And so I think I would probably also I'd like I think that's that's pretty much what uh, what you said there, Steph. Yeah, I, I really want to um, support what you're both saying, and that's the neuroimaging in a neurologic case is only helpful, I think, when you s- decide beforehand what you think you're expecting because of the sensitivity of the assessment may have nothing to do uh, with the observations, may have nothing to do with the problem you're trying to solve. But we have here, and it's hard to push it, put it in one area, but it doesn't matter. We, what we have here is a sensory level. We have a, an irritation of the upper motor neurons, and we have the suggestion that the arms and the legs are involved. That's basically, I mean, in, in simplest terms, that's what we have. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to put it in one lesion. One yeah. lesion would make it at you know lower thoracic, but but that doesn't account for the arms. Is there a symptom complex that you guys can think of that is neurologic, something upper motor neuron, spine or, or brain, leukopenia, and elevated liver enzymes, kind of infiltrative pattern, elevated liver enzymes, anything that strikes you when we kind of look at skipping over the neuro exam in specifics, the issues list? What do you guys think about that? Not off the top of my head. Hmm. And there are, th- you know, I, the only the only uh, concern I would have 
is the description of elevated liver enzymes because mm-hmm. you know we use this conglomerate of group we group test to suggest that it's the liver and yet we recognize that the source of these enzymes may not be the liver so it's just by our verbiage we actually put ourselves in a situation where we're trying to explain something that actually isn't so at all it may turn out to be but i, I i'd prefer to say that abnormal enzymes from etiology unknown at this point. Okay. All right. So we don't know what's going on. That seems par for the course for us. So I think we're on track. So Alistair, what uh, what happened next in his case? So on further history, uh, he was previously a pretty healthy guy. He had a history of depression for which he took escitalopram and anxiety for which he took lorazepam as needed. He had a history of an inguinal repair surgery. And he also had lymphedema in his lower egg- legs, which had been chronic since childhood. As you said, he did get further neuroimaging, although I don't think in a 3T MRI, but um, in any case, um, as, as, you, uh, as you alluded to, he got imaging of his brain as well as his entire spinal cord. And the images of the cervical area of the spinal cord demonstrated a linear band of high signal within the dorsal aspect of the cord, extending from C1 to at least C6. And these were seen near midline in the dorsal aspect of the cord in the axial images. In addition, there was some abnormal signal within the right lateral aspect of the cord, also extending over a long segment. There was no cervical disc herniation or mass, and the spinal canal itself was normal. In the thoracic region, there was some high signal seen within the cord along its right lateral aspect with obvious changes more posteriorly. Uh, And there was a focal disc or osteophyte seen at the T3 level uh, without significant cord compression. The lower thoracic cord was unremarkable, and the lumbar spine down to the conus was normal. There was diffuse disc bulging at L4 to 5, but again, no significant compression of the thecal sac. His brain MRI showed ill-defined patchy T2 flare, high signal changes within the bilateral pons in midbrain, and there was also a hyperintense T2 flare focus in the right frontal lobes, but there was no mass lesion and no enhancing lesions either. They then went on to perform MRI images that were contrast enhanced, and there were no enhancements in any areas of the cord. And finally, he, uh, as expected, had a lumbar puncture performed, and this revealed zero nucleated cells, glucose of 3.1, a slightly elevated protein at 1.18, no xanthochromia, and there were oligoclonal bands present, but they were present in both the CSF and the serum, not supporting the diagnosis of multiple sclerosis. Cytology was negative for malignant cells, but did show rare, small, mature lymphocytes. And uh, any uh, infectious workup on that LP? Uh, the Yes, there was performed. Uh, a culture was negative for bacteria, fungi, uh, and mycobacteria. Uh, likewise, he had a, a tuberculosis PCR performed that was negative. His VDRL was negative. And he had a cryptococcal antigen performed in both the serum and the CSF that was negative. And while we're here, I can give you some of the other infectious studies that were sent off at that time. His HIV was negative, his syphilis was negative, and his Lyme disease antibody was negative. He also had an HTLV1 and 2 antibody that was negative. And as far as an autoimmune workup goes, he had a weak positive ANA at 1 to 80. His CRP was 7.2, and his rheumatoid factor was positive at 34.3. His ENA was negative, C3, C4, and MPO and PR3 antibodies were also negative. His IgG, IgA, and IgM were all elevated, with SPEP showing polyclonal hypergamma globulinemia, 
and a UPEP showing trace proteinuria with mostly albumin. <laughs> it's an interesting comment on our uh, assessment that we've uh, gone to an infectious inflammatory disease shotgun without actually thinking about what we're trying to prove. And so I think it's not a surprise that there is a problem with the, C- with the cord. What is a surprise to me is that the observation of how much of the cord is involved. And uh, I think at this point, I would do two things. Number one is I would revisit the MRI with the radiologist because it's really a radiologic differential at this point that I'm looking for, not my own differential. And the second thing is I'd go back to the patient and try and get a different history because I have no understanding at all of the context of this man. Steph, what do you think? I agree with Barry. You know, I if I was to prematurely give uh, give this episode a title, I would call it something like "You Better Like Herring," because I think we're going to be dealing with a lot of of red herrings here. Um, and, and and to push to push the analogy the the fishing line further, I think we need to go way way farther upstream here. Like as Barry is suggesting, I don't really know anything about this man's history and so like like why he's getting for example htlv1 testing is kind of, it's like very yeah i was bizarre just wondering that and and so totally. like i maybe there are things about this man that we don't yet know like you know what is his what is his ethnicity what is his travel history what are his risk factors for a variety mm-hmm. of things and and in the absence of any of that information i'm a little bit lost and i think we're just going to be sort of drowning in weird data until we get maybe a bit better sense of those things. So I was just questioning your thought process a little bit more, Dr. Voye. Um, what more specifically would you like to know about this gentleman that would help your clinical reasoning? I'd want to know, like, so he has, for example, he has chronic lymphedema. Like, I need to understand mm-hmm. that better. And just his, his general health history, maybe a little bit better. I want to know what he does occupationally. I want to know what his hobbies are like, I want to know what his travel history is, you know, what is the likelihood that this man is immunosuppressed or that he's been, that he's encountered an indolent infectious agent over the years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, we've talked about this in previous episodes that like the context really does help. And I think when I was a trainee and still, I sometimes fall into the trap of like the referral came with a positive MRI. And so you start from kind of a diagnosis or what looks like a diagnosis and you kind of work backwards from that and it seems like oh it doesn't matter that this person's from you know another country because the diagnosis is xyz right like they have ms because i'm told they have ms and um but but it really does kind of flip it on its head like like htlv1 is a good example like that's not an infection that uh, to my knowledge is commonly seen here but is very commonly seen elsewhere and can have properties like similar to HIV and and other um, and and I think maybe some of like the herpes viruses. So like it it totally matters, and also that should be part of the reason why it's sent, right? There ha- there should be a risk factor when you're composing your infectious diseases workup because there's a million bugs uh, and viruses. So you could send every test in the universe, or you target it based on where they've been and what they've been exposed to, and start there. I also think like now that we do have noise in this case, and I think you're right, probably like large components of this will probably maybe fix themselves or not be relevant. The things I want to make sure that we've kind of chased down are 
I think we're, you know, if I was seeing this person in a hospital, I'd be really focused in on their neurologic impairments because I think like that if we think about it hard enough, we can localize the lesions. However, we also have elevation in liver enzymes, um, like we had talked about, that is a bit of an infiltrated pattern and like simple cheap tests, like I'd probably get an ultrasound of the liver. I would think carefully about this serology that we've gotten back, like a weekly, po- barely positive ANA a mildly positive rheumatoid factor in CRP. Is there anything that we need to chase down there? Because these lesions, I'd have to go confirm with radiology, but they're not, as far as I understood, they're not enhancing, but they're T2 flare positive. So I'd have to ask, like, are those in keeping with inflammatory lesions of antiphospholipid or bachettes or lupus? Like, those are not things that I know off the top of my head. And I would definitely need help with that. And maybe neuro would know, but I'd also talk to the radiologist about that. So I think uh, I'd try and clean up some of this, um, some of these things and decide whether or not they're red herrings um, as we're moving through the case. You know, I like the concept of red herrings. Red herrings are red herrings when they're unusual and they don't apply or they seem to come out of the blue. But And I think I agree with both of you. I think that the issues are that we're starting this case with an observation of of an abnormality. Sometimes we start a case with symptoms with no abnormality demonstrated. But we're starting now actually with two abnormalities. One is he had chronic lymphedema and now he's got this neurologic syndrome. And we're kind of throwing things out that we kind of know and don't know. And But we're still waiting for the context of how we would apply some of our knowledge to some of these situations. And I think that's where we're at. And I think it's fair enough to say we don't know. And there's there isn't enough information right now to jump in any direction. Mm-hmm. So we need more workup um, and we need more history. So Alistair, can you fill in any of those gaps, any of the stuff that we've kind of mentioned? Yeah, I certainly can. And I think coming back to what you discussed, uh, a lot of the providers involved in his care initially, I think were somewhat overwhelmed by the extensiveness of his MRI findings and just jumped to uh, a lot of infectious and autoimmune tests uh, that they could think of to rule out potential etiologies without, as you said, going into his history a little bit more and exploring some of his past medical history. Um, But that came a bit later. Uh, I will fill in those details now. Um, This gentleman previously worked as a painter and previously to that as a resurfacer. He was mostly compliant with his PPE during his jobs, but not always. He is uh, Caucasian and was born and raised in Canada. He has never used IV drugs. Uh, but had used recreational cocaine in the past, but has been abstinent for several years. Uh, And prior to this, engaged in high-risk alcohol use, but again, has been abstinent from that for several years. He does, however, smoke cannabis daily, uh, and he has never traveled outside of North America. Further investigations that were also performed just to complete his workup uh, included a vitamin B12 level, which was normal. Uh, He also had uh, thyroid uh, and cortisol, again, which were normal. And Along those lines, several consultants, including neurology and hematology, were involved. And because his tests came back negative, they didn't have a good explanation. Hematology, because of his leukopenia, as well as the polyclonal hypergamma globulinema, did elect to perform a bone marrow biopsy at this time, uh, really simply because they had no other explanation for why this was happening and they were questioning some sort of lymphoproliferative or perineoplastic phenomenon. So, The bone marrow report uh, reads as follows. Both erythropoiesis and granulopoiesis are essentially unremarkable in number, maturation, and morphology. uh, And there was a slight excess of mature normal plasma cells. 
but there were no excess lymphocytes or blasts and no metastatic cells. He had uh, one plus out of four iron stores, and his core biopsy was about 25% cellularity, which was decreased for age. But otherwise, a trilineage hematopoiesis was present and unremarkable in morphology. Just to sum up this last uh, initial presentation, he was discharged from the hospital after his, his symptoms improved somewhat with physiotherapy. His laboratory investigations, including the ANA and the rheumatoid factor, as well as the hyperglamoglobulinemia, were attributed to systemic inflammation. And the presumptive diagnosis listed on discharge was a presumed para-infectious myelitis of unknown cause. I think it's not that, I don't know what your, your folks' experience has been, but sometimes in cases that end up being like some sort of progressive neurologic disease, there is kind of like this stuttering start or like we, maybe we imagine it, but they come into hospital and they're like, oh yeah, they seem to get better. So we discharge them. And sometimes like how, like <laughs> this, this disease doesn't really, in my mind, it's not one that like comes and goes or like has a stuttering start. Like some of these diseases are just like progressive diseases, but we do kind of see that in hospital sometimes. Sometimes people just kind of start to improve probably on their own. And uh, that can be kind of confusing for the team and uh, lead to discharge before a diagnosis. Not that it was wrong to discharge him. I just wonder if you guys see that too sometimes. I'm not sure that, that what happens is that the patient comes into the hospital and improves. I think a few other things happen. I think the patient comes into the hospital. The team is very excited about the case. Many consultants are involved. There is lots of optimism at the beginning. The patient senses that optimism. At some point, everyone poops out. It becomes clear that, <laughs> you know, the patient's basically stable. Maybe mm -hmm. there is and maybe there isn't an option to work this up as an outpatient. The patient is 39 years old and is tired of the hospital food and just wants to get out of there. And so there's a lot of momentum right. around just getting the person out of the hospital. Whether, whether there's any mm -hmm. objective improvement or not, I don't know. Like the treatment for this condition is not going to be physiotherapy. I'll, I'll tell you that much. Right. I, I think but... <laughs> I think Steph's really bang on. I think that first of all, neurologic situations often wax and wane, so that really isn't helpful. But the other issue is the criteria for admission and the criteria for discharge are so variable. And the way that we've approached these problems are that we will discharge you because you have the same symptoms as you had when you came in, but you seem to not progress with those symptoms and we have no idea and good luck. And we're <laughs> going to send you to somebody who might be able to figure it out because right now we're so busy, we can't figure it out. Yeah. And, and I think that that's... So I don't think that we should take anything more from that than mm -hmm. this is an interval component, whether it's the in patient initiated or not. I think the fascinating thing is that we still haven't heard entirely his the circumstances of his illness. We've heard some of the issues surrounding it, some of the recreational drug use, some of his the chronic uh, lymphedema. I mean, he's 39. I, I, I really still, I don't have really a sense of this guy and I don't. I don't know how it started. What happened? I, I don't get that history yet. So how how would you ask that? Like, what are you looking for specifically? Actually, you know what? I wouldn't ask it. I mean, so to me, the <laughs> the whole story is. Well, I guess what I would ask is, take me through this. Tell me what happened on day one. Tell me what happened on day three. Tell me what happened. Tell me where you were, what you were doing. I would try and just be in the in the presence of him while he was having these symptoms to try and sort out because I don't I don't have we can stab at a variety of different potential illnesses but to me those are just names in the in the ether 
I'm also interested in sexual history. I, I think that's something we often leave out of the social history, but someone sent in HTLV1 and syphilis and HIV and such. So I'd, I'd just be curious if there was anything there that raised a flag. Steph, what are you thinking about specifically in terms of occupation? I think paints and solvents can have all kinds of wacky toxins in them, like you know, benzene and, and, and other things. And and so, um, I don't know, like I've done a little bit of work at WorkSafe and, and, and just reading through some occupational history stuff. It just sounds like, like there's a mm-hmm. lot of um, occupational exposures that are not well tracked that can have all kinds of wacky and devastating health consequences. And so if someone is a painter and is not, uh, is either using like bad solvents or is not protecting themselves, then I think I'd want to know more about that. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, can you guys remind, like, what is the exposure in resurfacing? Is that? I have no idea. Okay. <laughs> so, hey, okay. But, so but, we, do but, have, we do have some questions about, uh, about the job well, then. Well, but I think that these are the, I, I mean, I don't think we have to have an idea. It's not like we're we're listening for something that we all know the answer to. I mean, to mm-hmm. me, it's like we're listening to circumstances that sometimes we don't know the answer to. And and that's where our job as an internist is try and put these things together to try and look at an answer, even if the answer isn't apparent at the beginning. So I don't have any discomfort mm-hmm. in not saying I'm trying to get an answer to this process. I don't we still don't know what the process is. Okay. All right, so Alistair, you want to take us through kind of what happens next? Gentleman's discharged, and then that's correct. So he, I think, the issue in getting a clear history from him stemmed from the fact that this developed subacutely, and he wasn't initially aware that it was happening until he was quite debilitated. But in any case, he was discharged. Six months later, he again presented with progressive difficulty, now with voiding, requiring intermittent catheterization. A repeat neurologic examination revealed more pronounced global hyperreflexia with new spasticity and four out of five strength bilaterally in the lower extremities, but his sensation was unchanged from previous testing. He had more extensive testing performed at this time for IgG4-related disease, uh, which included immunoglobulin subclasses, viral hepatitis, cryoglobulinemia, celiac disease, porphyria, and heavy metals, and all of these were negative. He had a repeat MRI also performed which showed unchanged T2 flare hyperintensities in the cervical and thoracic spinal cord, pons, and midbrain. And he also had a PET scan performed at this time, which did not demonstrate any FDG avid lesions. What? Yikes. Yikes. That's bad news. Well, now we begin the dance. (laughs) And so it begins. And so it begins. Okay. Uh, Barry, what's... What's the first step in this dance? What are what are you going to well, do? I mean, I think the issue is that we're at the end of our listening for the history. We're not okay. I shouldn't say we because maybe you are, but at the end of this process of the, and the description, I'm probably haven't changed the needle on any of the things that I was thinking about. And so, in the end, we are left with the same observations we had at the beginning, except with the exception of. Oh shoot! It's back again. So I think that now's the now to me is the decision making time of here's that the problem is and here's where we see the problem. How do we actually try and solve this? And to me, this would speak more of a direct answer than an indirect answer. And and what are so, you getting out there? What's, well, uh, I think what, that what's we your list? 
Well, I, I think the issue is that I don't have any preferred diagnosis at this point, but I know where the problem is, and it's in the CNS, and in it's in its leptomeninges. And so I think I'd look for a biopsy of those er- of that area. <laughs> okay. I think I'm... I, and sorry, Alistair, liver enzymes have normalized? That is correct. He had repeat... Okay. Uh, his repeat chemistries done at this time were all normal, including his kidney function. And now his liver enzymes, um, AST, ALT, ALP, GGT, LDH, bilirubin, and albumin were all normal. Mm-hmm. And um, he's had uh, some autoimmune workup, but but did he also have antiphospholipid testing in there? There was no antiphospholipid testing performed at this time, the reason being that his INR and PTT were normal and he had no history of thrombosis. Okay. I, I, I think maybe that's that's something that would be on my mind is that you do not require an abnormal INR and PTT to have positive antiphospholipids. It should be abnormal if you're going to have a lupus anticoagulant, which interferes with um, the function of the test. But the uh, anticardiolipin and beta-2 glycoprotein antibodies could be positive with normal INR and PTT. And you can get antiphospholipids specifically affecting the CNS before any peripheral manifestations. And he isn't ANA negative. So I think that I, I want to hear like the list of like what's on your mind for diagnosis from, from Stefan Barry, if they have any thoughts here. But I think I would try and round out each of those kind of big clusters that we're thinking of. Like, okay, what's a, okay, perineoplastic syndrome that was brought up. So what would be a common uh, neoplasm in this gentleman? Have we done a testicular exam? an ultrasound? Have we done appropriate uh, imaging of the chest, abdomen, and pelvis and um, autoimmune stuff? Okay, we got cryos and, and, and some funky stuff and IgG4. I would also make sure I had the antiphospholipid. Okay, infectious disease. Ask infectious disease or one of you guys, uh, anything else that we need to think about here? Because Barry, I think what you're getting at is that we're closing in on a moment where we do have to make treatment decisions, even if we don't have we haven't met a diagnostic threshold, but we've met a treatment threshold. Am I reading that right? Yeah, no, I think that, and then to support what Steph was saying is that some of the information we have is is information that we may not actually be familiar with as causing diseases. And I think that the exploration of he's a painter, he's a this, he's a that, given those situations, I mean, we'd be, bur- we'd be burning the E off Google by trying to figure this out. So in the end, I think, Still think we're we're still stumbling in. I mean, we're at the the dark stages. What do you think, Steph? Yeah, let me ask you if if his antiphospholipid is positive, mm-hmm. how would that change what we're doing right now? Um, so I think it would depend how positive. Like like many tests, it's all on this on a spectrum. And then I think if we had one strongly positive test in a sea of negative or weakly positive tests, that may be the decision that this is. CNS limited antiphospholipid syndrome. And that's as good as we're going to get of a diagnosis for the moment. And certainly, yes, we will continue to wonder if that's the right diagnosis. I would always put an asterisk next to any diagnosis that is a rare presentation of an unusual disease, as we all do. But I think that would be the best answer we have at the moment. And since he's getting worse, I would use that as the kind of the way to guide treatment up front. Okay. Steph, what do you think? What's on your mind? I think we're, I'm still like way, way, way behind here. I, my differential or my, I don't even have a differential diagnosis right now. I'm still at the early, you know, in a, in a case report in the, in uh, New England Journal, I'm still in that very first section where they're talking about 
I'm concerned about indolent infections and I'm concerned about malignancy and I'm concerned about infiltrative disease. That's how far back I am here. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm less, I'm less hot all of a sudden for, for like occupational things and toxins. Cause I presume in these six months, he's probably stopped working. And so if this was a toxin, it should be improving or resolving, but I'm still, and, and, you know, for him to have a, a really weird infection, boy, I, I cannot figure out what exposure he would have had to present with this infection. So I'm kind of in the infiltrative, malignant, and inflammatory boat, but boy, oh boy, I don't, I, this is not ringing any bells for me. Mm -hmm. And I, at this point, I wouldn't even know what terms to put into Google. I'm a little bit stuck, I would say. Can I say one thing in, in, in defense of what Steph is saying, but in terms of overall observations, and I think it's the issue of frequency and commonness is that if we presented, let me, let me ask Alistair, I, I'm assuming, but this may be the wrong assumption that he's Caucasian. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. If we uh, changed up his symptom complex and said this 39-year-old guy is presenting with weight loss and fever and arthralgia with no diagnosis that's been going on for years, for two th or three years, we would actually see this case very differently than this presentation. And so in thinking about this case, in, because it's really the symptom presentation that alerts us to where we're starting to search, we sometimes understand diseases by their companions, but because we we see their companions as this was the bad guy, this was the less bad guy, and this is the least bad guy, we never actually look at it in terms of could the least bad guy be the presenting problem? And so get, I guess what I'm saying is that he does not have features that would suggest Whipple's because he doesn't. For all the reasons I've said, he doesn't. But what diseases can affect a 39-year-old neurologically that have defied assessment at this point. And I don't know what Whipples would look like in the CNS. I truly don't. I don't know if Whipples ever presents primarily as a CNS disease. And I was just trying to think of an unusual presentation of an unusual disease with an unusual component of the unusual presentation. So I think that I would be looking at that aspect of his presentation to say to to do just what I'm suggesting, thinking of diseases that had that those components. Okay, I think one thing we have talked about before too in these unusual eye disease cases, uh, when you're thinking about various infections and infiltrative diseases, they always weren't a good going over of skin exam and probably an ophthalmology screening exam to make sure that there are no cardinal features uh, of some other disease. Um, so if this was like a liver and CNS case, then making sure that they don't have like Wilson's or other features of like hemochromatosis, stuff like that. Autoimmune stuff can do eye and neuro. Uh, infectious diseases can do eye and neuro. I, I think the big grab bags that uh, Steph that you had mentioned are, are still the ones that are on my mind. I guess I was, I was, I think I was trying to make the case that we are moving towards like he is deteriorating now maybe in front of our eyes and and we may at some point have to make have to come to an agreement on on treatment even if we don't we're not certain about category 
Um, if I recall right, he does have some brainstem involvement in midbrain and pons. I think I wrote that down somewhere. Yeah, that's correct. Um, and so I, I always, I am very, very worried because those lesions are not allowed to get much bigger without catastrophic kind of physical consequences. So I, I think we are still in the diagnostics phase, but I got uh, my my hand on 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 the holster. So what <laughs> happened? What happened in the hospital? Can I say one thing before before we go on? I, I, think <laughs> I, I have it. difficulty. I have difficulty in thinking this with its recurrence as infectious disease because TB could do this and other things. But it's, it seems to me that if you had that disease from TB, that that would be progressive. And this understanding that he gets better and he gets worse is more in keeping with some sort of inflammatory disease. Hmm. All right. Well, let's see. Alistair, so what, uh, how do you do in hospital second time? I guess j- just to follow up on that discussion, would you have started him on empiric treatment of some sort at this point, or would you have elected to continue observation? Um, I think I would probably be in the process of repeating a bunch of investigations, and I would be reluctant to start on any treatment for this neuro-predominant disease without neuro kind of involvement, like without the, like, I, I think this is a case where the predominant symptom is neurologic. And I think I shuffle them ahead of me in line in terms of, I'm, I'm still going to, you know, crack the whip to get things moving with investigations. But I kind of insist that this neurologic disease be the primary, you know, work of the neurologist. So like, what do you think it is? When's the right time to initiate whatever treatment we think? Antibiotics, steroids, uh, third thing I can't think about right now. So I, th- I think, no, I would, from rheumatology, not be ready to start something because I definitely don't have a rheumatologic diagnosis. I'm not even sure we've heard a neurologic syndrome other than like viral, questionable like post-viral myelitis of some kind. And I think that's a pretty vague description. So no, <laughs> that was a long no. <laughs> what do you guys, it sounds like you, you two are also no's? I think so. I think so as well. Okay. So uh, what what else happened in the hospital there? So at this time, of course, neurology was consulted and involved, and he continued to be followed by specialists in hematology and rheumatology. And as you discussed, they didn't have a clear idea of what was going on, uh, despite these extensive investigations. And as they didn't have any clear disease to treat, they elected to continue observation. He was discharged with the ability to intermittently self-catheterize due to his voiding dysfunction and with a cane as a gate aid, which he was able to use with some competence. So he actually did fairly well in the year following this. Um, oh, hold on, Alistair. I, I, <laughs> I, I think we have to stop for a second. This is really, really, really... Here's a 39-year-old guy who has a neurologic sin- syndrome who then leaves hospital and comes back and now is self-catheterizing, and we have no diagnosis. That's correct, yes. I, I mean... You know, if if any of us were in this situation, come on, you guys. I mean, this speaks poorly of us. Not, and that's not a criticism. It's just that, my, if I don't know how, what was he thinking, and why would he ever come <laughs> I, back to see us? I wish, I wish I had his thoughts at that point in time. <laughs> I think, I think it was challenging. Um, I, I guess the question I would ask in return is what. What further investigations would you have wanted in addition to what he had already to try and determine what what was going on in order to actually biopsy a brain biopsy meningeal something a neurologic biopsy of some sort yeah or or, i mean uh, the idea of uh, whipples is not 
I mean, it may be 1% of the 1% of the 1%, but it's a treatable thing. So I, I think that I would be, I, I don't know that I would say, well, good luck. You know, we'll see in a year. If you have to catheterize good enough, I, I'd be, I, I don't think I'd have been just happy to say goodbye. Um, I'm impressed that he did so well. I, I, I think to a degree, like they were right about the stability of the disease because he stayed out of, he stayed about stable for a year. You said that's not what I would have expected from most of the diseases that we were worried about, I think. So I'm curious well, to see well, uh, what uh, came back. But Danny, just recall the, I, and I don't mean to, I'm sounding like I'm beating a dead horse, but the Whipple's case that you and I saw, how many years did that go on? Uh, I, I don't remember. 10? Yeah. Ish. Mm-hmm. All right. So Alistair, what um, what happened next? So as I said, his, his course for about the year after he was in hospital was fairly stable. He was able to walk about a kilometer and then had to take a break to do fatigue with his gait aids and had ongoing unsteadiness. But on the whole, that functional status uh, was relatively unchanged. But then he started to develop a few new medical issues which required investigation and treatment. So about a year and a half after his initial presentation, so this was about uh, so after that year, since he was last hospitalized, he began, began to develop intractable nausea and vomiting. Oh, no. He was re- sent to gastroenterology and he ended up having an upper endoscopy, which demonstrated H. pylori induced lymphocytic gastritis, which was treated with uh, bismuth quadruple therapy. And he also had a lower endoscopy, which demonstrated no abnormalities. Subsequently, six months after that, he began to develop painful nodular skin lesions involving his bilateral antecubital fossae, thighs, and calves. And he had a skin biopsy performed which showed paniculitis with infectious studies and cultures performed on the biopsy material without any organisms isolated. He was referred to dermatology and they initiated him on a tapering course of prednisone and colchicine for this, which improved his skin symptoms. And interestingly enough, Repeat CBC at that time prior to initiation of therapy demonstrated persistent leukopenia of 1.5, which increased to 5.6 with normalization of his differential at that time. And then finally, he was reassessed by neurology later that year, and they did a very uh, complete neurologic examination, which I can list for you here just to provide context for how he progressed. His cranial nerves uh, continued to be normal. In the lower extremities, he still had slightly increased tone with normal hip flexor power and dorsiflexors being grade four to five bilaterally with a few beats of clonus at the ankle. His reflexes remained pathologically brisk uh, and his sensory examination showed, uh, again, a sensory level at about the inguinal region with normal sensation in his arms, mild dysmetria on heel to shin testing of both lower and upper extremities, and a gait that examined wide-based, stiff, and unsteady. At this time, he was put on baclofen by neurology for the spasticity, um, and he continued to take the t- tapering course of prednisone, and the colchicine by this time had been stopped due to improvement in his skin symptoms. All right. Well, that is a helpful piece of the puzzle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, paniculitis does focus us a little bit because now we have a couple dots to connect, right? Neurologic symptoms, paniculitis. Um, there are different types of paniculitis. So I think I'd want it. Maybe we could even, we could squeeze paniculitis for a little bit more of a narrow diagnostic field. Like was it paniculitis or erythema nodosum or could not tell the difference? 
I think that might uh, narrow a little bit more. But what do you guys think? What comes to mind? Or what, what are you on the hunt for now? I think we're, we're coming into uh, Dr. Ennis territory. I'm not oh, sure yeah. that this is rheumatology. You think it's Whipple's still? It can cause paniculitis, no. right? Yeah, they can. I mean, Whipple's is on the differential. But I'm wondering if, uh, I mean, paniculitis has a variety. I mean, it's it's just an inflammatory process in the subcutaneous tissues, which includes anything that can affect the blood vessels or, or subcutaneous tissue. And it, autoimmune disease certainly can, but we don't name an autoimmune disease that he has that involves paniculitis. I'm not really certain that I Lupus. would say this is what I think he has. Pardon yeah. me? Lupus. Um, if you made a diagnosis on lupus, lupus in this guy, I would really like to hear the the explanation because I'm not really certain I could make that. Even if the strongly positive in it, I the I mean, I still think if he has paniculitis, I think that uh, I'd like to look at the biopsy and see the blood vessels and see other things that are involved to come to this uh, appreciation of paniculitis. Um, yeah, I, I I think also like his responsiveness to. I think he said prednisone and colchicine. That's that's interesting that there were some changes in his blood counts with that. I think it. I'm so sorry. I didn't. I didn't quite catch it. Was it his white blood cell count in general went up, or was it just neutrophils or just lymphocytes? His white blood cell count in general went up. Okay, and was that was that primarily on the basis of neutrophilia? So his neutrophils came up to four point zero. His lymphocytes came up to one point four, and his monocytes came up to zero point two. His eosinophils and basophils essentially remained undetectable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I think like we we know that the prednisone is likely to call a little bit of neutrophilia, but uh, increase in his lymphocytes is important. Uh, low lymphocytes is common in connective tissue diseases, so that is another small data point. But beside the bigger ones, Danny, can I ask you if you think he has an rheumatologic disease, and you you have this information, what would you be? What would your preferred rheumatologic disease be in this man? Um, I think that there's still a fairly, I think a reasonably broad differential, and that does include vasculopathies like Bechet's. It includes infiltrative diseases like sarcoid. Um, it does include lupus for sure. You know, polyarteritis nodosa. I'd, I'd have to, you know, think about what kind of CNS involvement to really expect there because he lacks a lot of other features. I'd also want to look back and make sure like he had EMGs, I'm sure, um, at some point during his hospital stay and make sure there was nothing in addition to the central lesions, nothing peripheral um, that went along with that. Because if we find like, oh, actually he has like a peripheral neuropathy as well, those things would start to be one, targets for biopsy um, and to kind of point us perhaps towards one diagnosis or another. But yeah, I think we're probably falling into the autoimmune category. And his responsiveness to prednisone was, whether it's autoimmune or something else inflammatory, he seems to be steroid responsive. And I I find that to be promising that if he got worse, we have something in our pocket that could, that likely would help make him better, I think. I agree. So what I would, I would have, I would get out my, uh, my flip book, and I'd make sure that we've done all of the appropriate autoimmune testing for appropriate uh, diseases and that we've scanned other organs to make sure that there's no asymptomatic involvement. That would be kind of a nice additional data point that we go, oh, got it. There's a high level lymphadenopathy. Bing. We're calling it, we'll biopsy that, and, and it's sarcoid. That sort, of, that sort of approach. Well, let me ask you, Danny, if, let's say that uh, 
we do our workup, we're about the same level. You've committed or you've not committed, but he's been started. Somebody started him on prednisone. He's getting better. And we don't have a specific diagnosis, but we don't have any other diagnostic. Would you go on to suppress him with something other than prednisone at this point? Probably. I think at that point, it would be kind of a joint decision um, between like the treating physicians. The I would get certainly a inflammatory neurology specialist to weigh in. And we would probably between us all come up with what would be the appropriate steroid sparing medication. Because I think what he's demonstrated, obviously, without treatment, is that his disease has a relapsing remitting course. I, th- I you know, I, I think we're going to find out that this intractable nausea vomiting isn't H. pylori, but is progressive, a progression of a, you know, CNS uh, brainstem lesion of some kind, uh, you know, mm-hmm. correct me if I'm wrong. But Uh, So I think he's demonstrated he gets worse, he stabilizes, he gets worse, he stabilizes. There's no reason to think that this was the last time he was going to get worse. And so on that basis, I'd say a a tapering course of steroids is unlikely to give him the lasting benefit that he needs. And a relapse could be extremely serious, right? Like intractable nausea vomiting on its own isn't just, I can hardly think of a worse uh, symptom. That sounds awful. So I think those things would prompt the addition of a steroid sparing agent. And your diagnosis would be? Um, I think I would pick a phenotype. So assuming his antiphospholipids come back negative, we do an ACE level, and that's also negative, and we do it on the LP. So we don't have a clear, a, a, a nice clear answer. I'd review the pathology to say, hey, is this erythema nodosum or just general paniculitis? And at that point, I would probably pick between Bechet's, lupus, and sarcoid, one of those three. And I'd say, it, it, like, and I'd, I'd kind of try and narrow it down um, based on those, those pieces of information mm-hmm. and probably label it in my notes as possible blank, possible lupus, let's say. Differential includes sarcoid and uh, Bechet's, let's say. Something like that. It, w- it would certainly be... Um, like an uncertain label, but I think that that's how you kind of keep the diagnostic, the, like the the various diagnoses open. You don't tell people that this person definitely has Bechet's. And instead, I, I think you kind of outline your uncertainty. I think that that's better than than trying to be clever. I don't know. So what, I, what would you, what I, would I would you find out? Well, no, I, I think you're really bang on. I think that I feel exactly as you do, that the understanding of uncertainty is not uh, is not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of strength. And I think that I would support entirely what you're suggesting is that probabilities are one thing, but uncertainty is 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 really the answer here. And I I think that you've I think you've nailed it from that point of view. Okay, maybe we should return to the case. So Alistair, mm-hmm. so he gets H pylori. He's treated for H pylori. Does his nausea vomiting? completely go away he's totally fine now it did but that nausea and vomiting did coincide somewhat temporally with the initiation of the prednisone and the colchicine so it was a bit difficult to say whether it was the treatment of the h pylori or whether it was the therapy or whether it was just the natural course of his disease that caused resolution in that but uh but it did improve with time (laughs) okay cool what what happened next um, for him? So I'll just give you the neurolog- uh, neurology assessment at that time. Essentially, they said the underlying unifying diagnosis remains elusive, and they thought that the best approach was to continue to monitor him clinically. 
they did get a repeat MRI at that time, which showed patchy confluent areas of increased tissue signal in the periventricular white matter and confluent bilateral midbrain and pontine increased T2 signal, which was noted to be uh, similar to their previous exam. There were no abnormalities in the orbits, and essentially their overall impression was that although there was more extensive white matter changes involving the supratentorial white matter, most of the findings in the midbrain and pons remained stable. And similarly, in the uh, thoracic spine, there was subtle increased T2 signal in the dorsal aspect of the cord from T3 to T6, but on the whole, the radiologist remarked that this was not significantly changed from the previous exam. So that is where it left off. Now, unfortunately, after this period of time, things accelerated fairly quickly. About two and a half years, I guess, after his initial presentation, he now uh, developed worsening neurologic function with now increased tone and spasticity, which was more prominent in the lower extremities, uh, but now greater involvement of the upper extremities. The muscle power in his lower extremities worsened to three out of five with diminished sensation to light touch and pinprick now affecting the lower chest wall and extending up with a fairly clear sensory level. His cerebellar function now showed impaired finger to nose and heel to shin testing. His gait was broad based and spastic and he could no longer perform any tandem gait. Repeat investigations showed that his white blood cells had decreased to 1.5 with neutrophils of 0.6, lymphocytes of 0.8 and undetectable monocytes, eosinophils, and basophils. He was slightly anemic at 134, but with still normal platelets. Interestingly, his chemistries and liver function continued to remain normal. Uh, A repeat ANA was still weakly positive at 1 to 80. His CRP, however, was 2.9. And he had a full systemic lupus uh, autoantibody autoantibody profile done, which was negative. He had an autoimmune muscle disease profile and a CK, both of which were completely normal. His GAD65 antibodies were negative. His myelin-associated glycoprotein antibodies were negative. He had a neurologic disease profile performed on the serum, which was positive for an anti-GM1 IgM, but negative for all other antibodies. And he was also negative for anti-aquaporin-4 and anti-MOG antibodies. Finally, they sent a perineoplastic, an autoimmune panel on the previously collected CSF um, from his uh, initial presentation two and a half years ago. And this was negative for all tested autoantibodies. Hmm. What do you guys think? Uh, I'm, this doesn't change a whole lot for me. I'd still consider like empiric immunosuppression of some kind. You're, you're running out of time here. He's getting much worse. Yeah, I think well, I, I think, think that's he's bad. running out of time. I think that we we're two and a half years into this. He's progressed, and we still don't have an answer. So I think the, uh, the I mean we can be aggressive therapeutically without any specific diagnosis, or we can be aggressive diagnostically. And I still would go for the diagnostic aggression. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I, I think we've ruled out the things that are likely to get worse with treatment. And that leaves the things that are either likely to stay the same or get better with treatment. And I think that math helps to guide therapy here. I think that's this is someone who is really quite sick now. We've let him grumble along. And because time went on, he was worsening over that whole period of time. It was just kind of subtle enough that it didn't prompt anyone to give, you know, big guns immune suppression. But I think this is a clear indication here. I mean, if we had to tie in one thing, if if at this point and he doesn't have an infection or infection, I mean, I guess the possibility of the continual leukopenia 
suggest a hematologic origin and what could, you know, maybe he's got some form of slow growing maltoma or something that's just reflecting in nervous system disease. And this is the, this is the sign that he's got hematologic uh, origin. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, okay. So we've, we've certainly met a treatment threshold then. So what did the team in hospital do for him? So two things happened at this time to try and better uh, define his symptom complex. The first was that he was referred to a hematologist at a quaternary medical center who took a fresh look on the case and uncovered some aspects of his medical history that had not been previously known. So first of all, he took note of the chronic lymphedema since childhood, which had been pretty much asymptomatic, but sort of the interesting aspect of the case that hadn't been fully explained so far. He also uncovered that this gentleman had had recurrent human papillomavirus or wart infections of his hands and feet. Hmm. Lastly, he thought it was strange that he had polyclonal hypergammaglobulinemia um, in the context of this without any clear diagnosis of another autoimmune disease. So for this reason and for the reason of the leukopenia, as he mentioned previously, he did another bone marrow biopsy. Uh, now, this one showed essentially occasional dysplastic megakaryocytes and now disintegrated nuclei in a high nuclear to cytoplasmic ratio and megaloblastoid erythropoiesis, which was noted to be dysplastic. Um, and the mature neutrophils showed dysplastic features in the form of pelgoroid neutrophils, poor chromatin clumping, and hypogranular cytoplasm. They noted that there were blasts that were now increased at about 7% of the differential. And essentially, the overall diagnosis at this time was of a myelodysplastic syndrome with excess blasts. So that was the first aspect of the case from the hematology standpoint. The second aspect is that his rheumatologist actually decided to refer him to a rheumatology case conference, um, at which time all of these findings were discussed and uh, further diagnostic tests were proposed. So before I go on to discuss what they wanted to do at the case conference, do you have any thoughts uh, before I proceed? You in your ballpark, Danny? Um, I don't think I have anything clever. Myelodysplastic syndrome. I'm sure you're gonna say something, and I'll go, "Oh, that's so smart." But I don't. Uh, nothing's striking me right now. So no, I give up. Any thoughts from anybody else? No. All right. So the constellation of mild lymphopenia, the monocytopenia, the polyclonal hypergammaglobulinemia, the paniculitis. Um, and the chronic lymphedema in childhood uh, suggested to one rheumatologist a specific inherited defect in a particular gene associated with hematopoiesis and that also predisposed to congenital immunodeficiencies. So the test that was proposed at this case conference was a next-generation sequencing panel as well as whole exome sequencing to try and take a broad approach to determine exactly what was happening with this gentleman. And the results came back as positive for a variant of functional significance in the GATA2 gene at a variant allele frequency of essentially 50%, essentially confirming a germline mutation in this gene. On further assessment by his hematologist and the rheumatologist, they thought that this explained his clinical phenotype. The paniculitis, which they thought was presumed infectious and resolved with time due to his immunodeficiency, the monocytopenia and as well as the lymphedema, which is noted in a particular form of GATA2 haploinsufficiency called Emberger syndrome. Whoa, what <laughs> is that? <laughs> uh, 
And and just to make sure I'm hearing you right, GATA, G-A-T-A? That's correct, G-A-T-A-2. Because there is also DADA2, um, which, which can have an immunodeficiency subtype or a stroke subtype. And the stroke subtype can come with uh, paniculitis and ulcerating lesions. But that is more pan-like vasculitis. And so I was, <laughs> I was really worried you were going to say that because <laughs> I'm supposed to know something about that. And I, I feel like I don't. So what can you tell me more about GATA2? What is that? And why should I remember sure. it? <laughs> so I, th- I don't think the, the important thing to take away from this case is as much the, the gene itself as in when, is, when to consider uh, an inherited condition or congenital syndrome as the cause of a patient's presentation. But GATA2 itself is a transcription factor that's pretty critical for hematopoietic development and immune system function. And historically, there were four clinical syndromes that were described with haploinsufficiency in GATA2. The first one was called monomac syndrome, uh, so-called because it uh, predisposed to monocytopenia and mycobacterial infections. There was Emberger syndrome, which was more consistent with what our gentleman had, which was primary lymphedema uh, and recurrent cutaneous warts. There was dendritic cell monocyte B and then case cell lymphoid deficiency. And finally, there was isolated familial MDS and AML. So in his case, he certainly fell into several of these categories with the monocytopenia, the lymphedema, the warts, and his eventual development of MDS. And although the disease has been shown to affect many body systems, CNS involvement does seem to be rare. So his really predominant neurological manifestations were fairly atypical for the disease. Wow. I, I, I feel ashamed because I think even if you had given us the diagnosis, like that he had recurrent warts on his hands, I really think in my heart that I probably would have ignored that feature. But here, it sounds like it actually links a lot of things together. And um, I'm not sure how I would have circled back to it and been like, oh, like myelitis, myelodysplastic syndrome, and warts and lymphedema. Like I'm going to type all those things in. I really wouldn't have seen the connection with the warts. So I'm, I'm not sure that this is a case I would have solved even over time. How would you guys have a, approached this? Would you have approached it any differently or how how would you have gotten to a resolution? Um, I think it just reminds me that like what a lot of these cases cases hinge on is some kind of pattern recognition. And in this case, you know, the team was lucky enough to have a rheumatologist who recognized this very unusual pattern. I never would have been able to recognize that. And so my, my only concern, like if this patient had been mine, is that you know, you're kind of relying on serendipity to put you in the same room as this person who's going to recognize this pattern. And, and I'm not sure that me and Google could have, could have figured this out. So it's, it's kind of, it's a little bit, it's, it's, it's really uncomfortable. Like I, Mm -hmm. I have no idea how I would have figured this out. And I, yeah, gosh, this case like this, they're scary to me because, because I I easily, I could easily, you know, I, I, I don't, I'm sure I don't have one of these in my practice right now, but but I do have, you know, I met a patient the other day who thankfully was referred to me for something else. It turned out he's a retired psychiatrist. And he, when he was in medical school, 
made a genetic diagnosis on himself. At the time, he was one of like 10 people in the world who'd been diagnosed with this genetic syndrome. And and this is like in the pre-internet era that he made this diagnosis. It's like, it's insane, but it, inc- it wow. requires a lot of serendipity. I just, I don't know. You know, I... Can I, I, can I make you feel I, a little bit better? Sure. I, I'm I, Okay. I, so, so because I think that this is your pattern of practice, I actually think you would have solved this. And that's because I just typed in to Google, warts, myelodysplastic syndrome, myelitis, lymphedema, cytopenias. And that would have been pretty much our issues list here, right? And the very first thing that comes up is Emberger syndrome. <laughs> so, so maybe this is more solvable than we thought, but it, maybe it would have been something that you go, okay, obviously like something weird's going on and I don't, I can't recognize the pattern I'm going to ask for help for people to clarify different pieces or at least label it. Like, what's the hematologic problem? Okay, it's MDS. Great. I'm going to call it MDS. What is the description that neuro is using for the nerve stuff that's going on? And then I I think you actually would have, because I don't think you bring much ego to the table when you're trying to diagnose. I think you would have probably typed those things into Google and seen and learned for the first time what Emberger syndrome is, just like I am. And then then the next step is to to find the resources to get a genetic workup, you know, and, and I find it's actually very difficult to access a, a geneticist when I need one. And, and I find that like, I find my ability to work up genetic diseases, even when I, when I suspect I've found one is very hard. I, I wish that was easier. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that's a service that I, I think it, like, I do find that when I send a referral, it feels inaccessible or it, or it feels like, my patient will be triaged deep down their list. I do wonder if it's a service that can give you advice over the phone in the same way that you would call a respirologist or, you know, your, your cardio colleague for a quick chat about something. I think in my head, I slot genetics in as like, they're going to have to spend like eight hours reviewing this case to even like come to any guidance about what to do. And maybe not so like, uh, maybe maybe they're able to kind of like hear the quick and dirty and be like, yes, that actually does sound like a classic Emberger syndrome and um, and and kind of help help guide things over the phone. I think, though, that if I called them, there's no way that I would have told them about like childhood lymphedema. Like I'd be blind to it. It, w- it would just fall off my radar. But um, you're right. It, it is definitely hard to access and they're not easy tests to send um, through like life labs as an example. I think there's a great value to what we've done. I think that uh, the role of the internist as a diagnostic diagnostic, uh, physician is really emphasized by this case because I don't, it doesn't matter to me that we didn't have the diagnosis. It matters to me that we had the issues. And once the issues became apparent, Google helped us. If Google weren't apparent, uh, if Google weren't available, all of these issues would never have been solved. Maybe the one rheumatologist is, I don't know, walking the earth, going from city to city, deciding this. But that's not, I mean, you. there are going to be many, many, many syndromes that we've never recognized because phenotypically we've said they're this or that, that are going to be uncovered with the the new technology of genetics and the things that we can look for. So I think that what we've done as internists is to look at each of these issues, the clinical assessment, the evaluation, and how we would then proceed. And so we've come to a a situation. I mean, what happens two years from now when three other things happen and it's not GATA? 
It's uh, gotta. It's uh, had a. I wish I had a. I don't know. I mean, who knows what's going to happen? So I, I, I think we actually did pretty well. I think that uh, I think we didn't ever anchor, and and that's hard to do. But I think that we did all right. I think another takeaway here is asking asking a friend, like the fact that the rheumatologist is like, hey, I, I don't know, I'm going to bring it to our case rounds and just run it by a whole bunch of other people and see if someone has bumped into a case like this. I think like that that is a good way to approach things. And it's, it's good to have colleagues uh, that you can kind of touch base like that to discuss cases and the combined value of all of your brains put together is always going to, I think, going to be a better doctor than any one of us on our own. I totally, totally endorse that. I mean, having colleagues like you two, having colleagues that you can discuss things with, having colleagues that you're working with and understanding that you're all trying to solve the problem, putting enough energy into trying to understand the problem, that's really, I mean, we're not going to be right 100% of the time, but whatever the percentage is, we've tried, we're, we're exploring the, the etiologies to the extent of our knowledge. But how many of us would suggest that at the end of the day, we have an understanding of 100% of the diseases that we see. How many of us would suggest that given a name, whatever that name is, lymphoma, lupus, carcinoma of the lung, dementia, whatever, that we understand every genetic and phenotypic presentation of those diseases? I don't think any of us would. So it's not surprising to me that we end up in this situation we probably should. We probably end up in this situation all the time. We just don't recognize that we're in this situation. Mm-hmm. So maybe Alistair, maybe you can kind of close this out here. Uh, so where are we? Where what happens with the case at that point? Yeah. So I think this prompted a lot of reflection on the part of all the clinicians involved. Um, similar to what you were discussing before, is if had genetic testing been performed earlier, would this diagnosis have been picked up earlier? But a lot of the issues you brought up simply with regards to access and the expense of the testing, I think really precluded that until it was brought to the rheumatology case conference and the quaternary center hematologist who had access to those resources. So in a sense, without actually having thought about this diagnosis in a very specific way from the beginning, I don't think it would have really come to that unless he had developed MDS as he did. And then that really prompted the consideration of a germline predisposition to a myeloid neoplasm. But as far as his clinical course goes, he was initially referred for referred for hematopoietic stem cell transplant assessment at this time as the only really curative therapy for his MDS. He was also referred to a neurologist at the Quaternary Medical Center. And this neurologist evaluation confirmed that the clinical and imaging findings were not suggestive of MS, of neuromyelitis optica spectrum disorders, or any other known inflammatory or demyelinating diseases. And the potential mechanisms that were proposed as possibly leading to his neurologic presentation were dysregulated uh, immune response in the context of an immunodeficiency. Uh, but also GATA2 has also been shown to have important roles as a transcription factor in neuron development, not in just hematopoiesis. There was some thought that perhaps there may have been a neurodegenerative component in addition to an inflammatory component as well. He underwent an assessment with a transplant infectious diseases physician prior to consideration of a bone marrow transplant, who also confirmed that there was no evidence of an infectious cause of his neurologic symptoms. 
So as I said, the bone marrow biopsy demonstrated progression to MDS with excess blasts, and he had cytogenetics that showed a complex abnormal karyotype with his IPSSR score, which is used to score the risk of MDS and the prognosis being very high risk. So he was planned to start um, 5 azacytidine with subsequent allogeneic uh, stem cell transplant from a matched unrelated donor. But unfortunately, the initiation of therapy was delayed due to an episode of epididymoarchitis complicated by sepsis and thereafter by EBV reactivation and more profound loss of strength in his lower extremities, thereafter requiring hospitalization and intensive rehabilitation. Finally, nine months after his MDS diagnosis, he received one cycle of azacytidine, but this was poorly tolerated with febrile neutropenia requiring another hospital admission and subsequent development of invasive pulmonary aspergillosis disseminated herpes zoster, a calculus cholecystitis, and severe muscle deconditioning. And due to the severe deterioration in his functional status, he opted for supportive care and palliation at home uh, and passed away from infectious complications four years after his initial presentation. Wow. 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 That's really, that's really sad. You know, the hope is always that we solve these complicated cases before they get away from us and not always possible. And it's always going to be sad when you lose a patient. I think this is one that I'd frequently kind of reflect on and uh, wonder what I could do better. And uh, that's, uh, that's sad to hear. Sounds like there's lots that we can always all do better. And uh, this guy probably got the best care by having people ask for second opinions from people that they trusted. And so I think that's probably a good pattern of practice or lesson to take away to lean on your friends. I think the other thing I would say is that there was, uh, from the description, there was no salvaging this. I think he had a progressive illness that we couldn't interrupt. And and I think there are those illnesses that we don't have. And sometimes our interruption leads to an earlier demise. Well, Alistair, thank you very much. That was a tough case for sure. Uh, we appreciate you preparing that one. And um, I think probably leave it there for today. At a, <laughs> at a lean hour and a half of recording. And um, we'll, uh, we'll all catch everyone later at the next case. Thanks, Thanks everybody. Alistair. Thank you, Alistair. Great. Thanks for having me. Bye, everyone.